Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. A very pleasant good evening, and welcome to That's Truth. I am Augustine Erskine, with you on the program, and also Pastor Murphy is here as usual to answer your question. We have a very interesting and important topic to cover tonight. The topic is on the eternal security of the believer. We'll be answering a question that was posed last week by a listener who asked a question on the passage of Scripture in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 and 6, a passage of Scripture that some interpret to be teaching that one could lose his or her salvation. And Pastor Murphy, how could you answer this question? Let me say a very pleasant good evening to you. Uh, thank you, Brother Erskine, and let me thank the audience for allowing us to enter their homes. Uh, we hope that tonight's program would edify them and give them some certainty in their lives in respect to their standing before God. just like to let our listeners know that it's an interactive program, and you could participate by calling us at 268-462-7420. That number would get you live on the air. Or if you'd want to send us a WhatsApp or a text message, that number is 268-782-1454. Or if you are viewing on Facebook, you could send us a message also from our Facebook page. So once again, a very pleasant good evening. And Pastor Murphy, how would you describe eternal security? What eternal security is all about? Because there are those who um, said that you could lose your salvation. So just give us um, an idea of what eternal security is all about. The basic definition of eternal security uh, is really the work of God, uh, which guarantees that the gift of salvation once received by a believer is forever and cannot be taken from him and it cannot be lost. That's the gist and the essence of what eternal security is about. However, Brother Esther, let me just make a comment here in connection with the Hebrews chapter 6 text. I'm, we're going to deal with this text, but uh, because it's such a controversial text and there's so much so much disputes about uh, what it teaches, um, what does it mean, um, because it's such a controversial passage, I think that um, I need to do something before we, we would get to that passage. Let me just 
explain to the audience what I think is necessary. Um, because it is a passage of this nature, I think we need to exercise and caution. And it is wise that when we come into a passage like this, uh, as far as interpreting this passage, that we bear at least three basic principles in mind, three hermeneutical principles. Let me just mention these very quickly because you'll understand why we're coming from at the problem from this angle. The first principle that must be kept in mind when you're interpreting Hebrews chapter 6 is that it has to be interpreted in light of the entire book of Hebrews. What's the theme of the book of Hebrews? What's the purpose of the book of Hebrews? What is the writer trying to establish? What was the situation the writer was dealing with? I say that to say this, that when you read the book of Hebrews, uh, it is clearly written to Christians, no doubt about that. Uh, the writer treats the hearers as, uh, or the people that read as uh, believers. You cannot read the book of Hebrews without sensing that he's dealing with Christians. Uh, the further thing that needs to be important, uh, is important that you need to understand he's dealing here with Jewish believers. You cannot read the book of Hebrews without understanding that uh, he's really dealing with Jews who had come to faith in Jesus Christ, who trusted Christ as Savior. But now they were going through a time of severe tribulation and testing, and they were about to relapse and revert back to old Judaism with all its legalistic codes. And the rite of Hebrews is appealing to these uh, Hebrew Christians that they must not go back, they must mature, and they must go on. And he gives them some very stern warnings that if they revert and relax back into legalistic Judaism, there are some very severe consequences. The question is, what are those consequences? Are those consequences temporal or are those, ten those consequences eternal? So I think when you're reading, trying to understand Hebrews 6, the first thing is to understand the whole book. Interpret it in the context of the whole book. The second thing that is important when you're dealing with Hebrews chapter 6 is that you have to look at it in the context of the immediate passage, what comes immediately before and what comes immediately after. And when you read Hebrews chapter 6, you'll find that it's written in the context of maturity. Believers need to go on to maturity. You find that in chapter 5, number 11, uh, verse 11, which precedes it. It's all a question about maturity. They're either going to go forward or they face the danger of relapsing. To go forward, they must mature. And to mature, they must get into the deep things of Christ. They cannot retain just milk, 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 must go on to meat. So in the, in the context, Hebrews chapter 6 is dealing in the context with the whole question of maturity and believers relapsing. And then the third thing that needs to be borne in mind when you interpret a passage like this is that it must be interpreted in the context of the general tenor of Scripture. The Bible does not contradict the Bible. So if you look in the Scripture, this passage must harmonize with other portions of the Bible. And if the general tenor of Scripture is that it teaches eternal security, an obscure passage like this cannot be used to disprove or to go against what the Bible teaches consistently. So we have to interpret it in such a way it doesn't contradict what other passage of Scripture has said. Other than that, we have a book of confusion, and God is not the author of confusion. So Hebrews chapter 6, to be understood, those are the three things that had to be worn in mind. The theme of the book of Hebrews, 
the immediate context and the fact that it has to harmonize with other teachings in the scriptures and that it must not contradict what is so patently thought in the Bible in, res- in respect to God keeping his own and the believer being secure. I think if we bear those three things in mind, it would help us to interpret this passage without violating the rules of interpretation that would create conflict and misunderstanding. Now you were asking the other question. What was your question before about the difference? The question between is, what is eternal security? And are there any difference between preservation, perseverance, eternal security, and assurance? All these. Well, three of these terms are synonymous to some extent: preservation, um, perseverance, and uh, the matter of um, eternal security, assurance is something quite different. Uh, perseverance uh, has to do with the work of God preserving the believer. Uh, perseverance uh, is more Calvinistic term. Uh, those of you that are familiar with the tulip, uh, the Calvinists have five basic doctrines, uh, total depravity, uh, unconditional election, limited atonement, uh, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. So it's a term that even though it refers to eternal security, it, it emphasizes the perseverance of the, of, the, of the believer. Eternal security more emphasizes God's work in preserving the believer. Perseverance seems to indicate more that uh, the believer perseveres, the emphasis more on the believer than it is on God. But that's a matter of um, you know interpretation. Uh, I mentioned before, eternal security is the work of God, which guarantees that the gift of salvation once received can never be um, lost, the believer cannot be lost, and it focuses and emphasizes God's activity in guaranteeing that the eternal eternal gift of eternal life remains with the believer, and the believer shall never forfeit eternal life. Now, assurance is slightly different than those terms. Assurance uh, has to do more with your personal realization of the biblical truth of eternal security so that you begin to enjoy it, so that you you yourself have assurance of it. So assurance more has to do, it's more subjective experience that the believer has as a result of understanding the doctrine of eternal security and that he is safe and secure in Christ. So those are the three major, but the first two, uh, first three, perseverance, uh, preservation, and uh, eternal security are virtually synonymous terms. Uh, assurance is more a personal subjective experience the believer has once he begins to understand that he is secure in Christ. Thank you very much. Okay, as we continue with our topic tonight, the eternal security of the believer, or some term it as once saved, always saved, and truly, Pastor Murphy will be um, continuing. Pastor, what is the basis of the doctrine of eternal security? Well, the ultimate basis of not just the doctrine of security, but any biblical doctrine, it has to do with uh, what the scriptures say and what the Bible teaches. And uh, and when you look at the whole question of salvation, the security of believer is fundamentally based on the fact that salvation is, uh, is based on the grace of God. It is also based on the fact that salvation is a, a gift of God, and uh, it is not a meritorious um, act or accomplishment of man. It is something that God does for man. Now, if salvation was dependent on man, 
nobody can be secure, eternally secure. But the fact that salvation is the work that God does in the life of a believer uh, um, guarantees uh, his eternal salvation. In other words, what I'm saying about Erskine, if salvation is the a new creation, that God actually creates a new being uh, that is composed of unchangeable and imperishable elements uh, that depends on the perfect, immutable merits of Christ, then that person cannot be lost. But if it is dependent on an individual keeping themselves, I do not know of anybody who has the capacity to keep themselves saved were it not for the fact that God is the one that preserves and keeps. But hopefully as we go through the process, we'll come to scriptural verses and we'll be able to make some great clarity on this matter. All I would say is this. Obviously, both cannot be right. A believer cannot be saved and lost in one case, and a believer cannot be eternally secure. There are two opposites. So it's either that he's eternally secure or he can be saved and he can be lost. What decides that is not what I think or what you think. It is what the Scripture teaches. And if we find in Scripture there is, seems to be a contradiction, we have to get clarity by applying the uh, basic principles of hermeneutics. Because without proper principles of hermeneutics, proper means of interpreting, we'll always end up where either we contradict Scripture or we're uncertain of what the Bible teaches. But uh, it will become very clear that this doctrine is clearly taught in the Bible. So therefore, when we begin to interpret Hebrews chapter 6, we must interpret it against the background that they believe is eternally secure. Hebrews chapter 6 cannot contradict what the Bible teaches in other portions. Otherwise, we don't have a book that is from God. we got a confused manual. So you're saying that the Bible is absolutely clear on the teaching of eternal oh, security. There's no, there's no doubt in my mind about that. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind. And I hope that as we go through uh, our discussion and our conversation that we can establish that fact in Scripture. Now, I would also add to this two things. Number one, let us be very honest that a lot of people who profess to be saved are not saved. Let that be given immediately. The problem that people have That is to, a strong uh, statement. Oh, it's a strong statement, but it's a true statement. A lot of people who think they're saved are simply not saved. You can look at, the Bible said you can look at the fruit of a person's life and know if they're saved or not. We're supposed to be fruit inspectors. We can't uh, establish a person's motive or destiny, but one thing we can observe is the fruit in a person's life. And our Lord made it very, very clear in, in Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, 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 and I do all this, and I do that, and I, 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 I'm going to enter the kingdom. I will say to them, I never knew you. So there are going to be people who are professed people that are not saved. And I think what people do is that they look at people who once made profession of faith, have gone back into the world, completely messed up their lives without any chastening of God. Now, this is my point. Without any chastening of God, and they've drifted so far away you cannot tell that they were saved or not. I think a lot of people think that those are saved people. In most cases, those people are lost people. Right? If that person is in a backslidden state, the Lord is going to chasten him. Now, if you are in a backslidden state and the Lord is not chastening you, the Bible tells you one thing, you're not a son, you're a bastard. So if you are a backslidden and you're not getting any chastening, mark it down. You don't know God and God doesn't know you because he has promised to you that every child of his, he will discipline and he will chasten. And this is where the book of Hebrews comes in very clearly. that The discipline is so severe that it might involve taking your life. 
And that will come up very clearly if we study the book of Hebrews because there's a sin unto death. And, and the Bible says, I pr- ask you not to pray for the person who's committed a sin unto death. You can commit a sin as a believer to the point where God said, that's it. That's it for you. No more chances, no more opportunities, no more repentance. I'm going to take you out prematurely. So you'd say like a person who prophesies or who is saved and continually, habitually living in sin, God sometimes eventually just cut off that person. No, I'm, t- no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying the Bible says that. Not Pastor Murphy, the Bible says well, that. Well, I know you're basing yeah, the Bible um, says that. your facts on Yeah, I, I have no God. doubt in my mind that when a believer gets away from God, and there's such a thing as backsliding, and believers do sin. No believer is perfect. And there are people who get away from the Lord over time for whatever reason. But my, 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 the thing that that person has to bear in mind, the evidence that you are a true child of God is that while you are away from Him in disobedience and, and in sin, the chastening hand of God is upon you. If you can get away with this and there's no chastening of God, then nothing happens in your life. You just could go a happy, jolly life and you can live in sin and corruption and evil for a prolonged period of time and there's no chastening hand of God in you. Mark it down. Your, your, your profession is suspect. But if when you go away from the Lord, you begin to feel His chastening, and His chastening comes in different ways. Sometimes He attacks your health, break your dung. Sometimes it involves a loss of job, a loss of your marriage, your children. Sometimes it involves um, uh, many other forms. But the fact is, you will become aware that the Lord's hand is against you. That is the, one of the clearest evidences that you are a child of God, in spite of the fact that you're away from Him. He is chasing you to bring you back. But if there's no chastening, he says, you're not a son, you're illegitimate son, you're a bastard. So, but then if God chastens you and you continuously perpetuate living in sin, no matter what God does, he can't get your attention. There is a sin unto death where God says, that's it. I will remove you prematurely. I'll take you out. And that is what happens many times when we hear of a sudden death of a person whether it be some bizarre car accident or, or some uh, person who seemed to be quite young and we can't understand why this has happened. Uh, many, many times, if you were to know that person's life, even though he's a professed believer, he's been living in rebellion, she's been living in rebellion over a period of time. God has given opportunity after opportunity. He has spoken, he's chastened. The person has not responded. The time comes when God says, that's it. That's it. That is the sin unto death. where you can reach the point as a believer that God takes you out prematurely. And by the way, that is demonstrated in the Bible, that God killed people, killed Christians. So I hope we can come to establish that. But I think it's important to understand that do not judge the biblical doctrine of eternal security by the experience of what you see. Because a person who claims to be a Christian, gone away from the Lord and living the most bizarre life, two things. If he is a Christian, he will be brought back. If he's not brought back and he's chastened, he'll be cut off. And uh, the other factor is, of course, several of these people, many of them, simply are not Christians. They just made a bogus profession, uh, which had no heart in it, no meaning in it, and then um, there's no oil. It runs out. But Pastor Murphy, there are those who say that if you hold to the doctrine of eternal security, you are purposefully promoting a license to sin. People who make that statement really do not understand what salvation is. 
I'll say I'll make that step. They don't understand what's they equate salvation with a person coming forward and saying a little prayer, bowing their heads and say, I accept Jesus in my heart. And we say to them, those people are saved. That's the biggest mistake we make. When a person is genuinely saved, he is a new creature. He has the divine nature placed in him. He is a new person. If he's not a new person, if there's no change in his life, nor ch- that person is not a Christian. He can, he can say he's made a decision a dozen times or two dozen times. It doesn't make any difference. Salvation is a work of God that transformed the person into a new creature, a new person, a new nature. He changes. He must change. Right? It, doesn't mean, it doesn't mean he can't fall back. But there must be a change in that person's life. And I'll tell you this. It has been my experience and my knowledge that often when God saves a person, there is some besetting sin in that person's life that has been keeping that person from trusting Christ. When that person really comes to true saving faith, he recognizes he's surrendering that sin. And that the power of that sin is broken in his life. But here's the danger. As that believer goes on in his Christian life, if he does not mature, and he does not remain close with that same besetting sin that the Lord delivered him from often becomes the very sin that brings about his downfall. But there is a change, and there must be a change. If it's not a change, there's no salvation without change and with that person being a new creature. And again, this is not Pastor Murphy saying that. This is the Word of God that tells us that we, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Behold, all things are passing away. Behold, all things are becoming new. We are not perfect immediately. But we're moving in the direction of spiritual perfection, which is called biblical maturity. That's where we're headed. But there must be a change, significant change in a person's life. And if there's no change in a person's life, mark it down. They have a profession, but they do not possess the real thing. It is not authentic, it's not real. And I think First John said that if you are saved, you do not habitually, continually practice sin. Correct, correct. John mm. makes that clear. He that is mm. born of God does not habitually practice sin. Now the, the, the King James got it does not commit sin. But in the Greek language, yeah, it's yeah, the yeah. linear tense, which is the continuous tense, and the habitual tense. He that is born of God does not habitually practice sin. Uh, and and that, the Bible is very clear on that. What do we get saved from, Brother Erskine? We get saved from sin. So I cannot come to Jesus Christ to have my sins forgiven with the intention of going back just and committing sin as, as, as recklessly as I did before. I must understand that when I come to Him, I want whatever sin was preventing me from coming to Him, I'm surrendering that to Him. Whether that be drugs, whether that be sex, uh, whether that be lying or stealing, uh, whatever it is, cursing, swearing, whatever it was might be setting sin. When I come to Christ, I understand that I am turning that over to Him and I'm asking to break that power in my life. I can't come to Christ that I want to be delivered from fornication tonight and, and tomorrow night I'm sleeping in fornication. Such a thing doesn't exist. It might exist only in what we do, but there's no reality to that. See? And that is why we've got to be very careful when we're dealing with people about bringing them to the Lord that we explain to them with clarity what this means. You're being saved from sin. You're not being saved so you can continuously practice sin. You're being saved so that the power of sin can be broken in your life. If you don't want that, well, you can't have salvation because salvation involves repentance, first of all, which is turning away from your sin, and faith in Jesus Christ. You two of those things go together. Thank you, Pastor Murphy. As we continue our topic tonight, 
the eternal security of the believer. Pastor Murphy, what about a sinning believer or a believer that goes away from the Lord? Is he still saved? Well, if he is a born-again believer, he's adopted in God's family, if he's justified by faith in Jesus Christ, uh, there's no question he's still a believer. Uh, and again, if he's not a believer, why would God chasten him? God only chastens his children. So, and why, why would chastening be needed? Chasing be needed only because we go away from God, we get involved in sin. So the fact that the believer sins cannot mean that the believer loses his salvation, because if it did, God would therefore have no legitimate right to chasten him. But because he's a child of God, God chases him to bring him back to himself. So uh, backsliding or going away from the Lord doesn't uh, remove your sonship. It removes your relationship with God, your fellowship with God. But sonship is secure. Sonship is something eternal. And, and by the way, uh, an interesting thing I would say this, um, if Hebrews chapter 6 is saying that it means that a believer who goes away from the Lord uh, cannot be brought back to repentance, think about what that means for just a moment. It means that every single backslider can never be saved again. Or can never come to, to and if that per, if you personally believe that you can be saved and lost, the person who was saved and get lost, he can never get saved again because it said he can never be returned to repentance. So it can't mean that, see, because we've known people who have thought they were saved and uh, went into the church and then got away and then they realized they were not saved and they've been able to come back and, and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So we've got to be very careful how we interpret this passage because if we're saying that a person who was truly saved can now be lost and he cannot be brought back to repentance, it simply means that he can never be saved again. So he's eternally lost. If that's what the passage is saying, then, uh, but we will try to show you as we go on and deal with it at, uh, at some point, that that is not the teaching and there has to be a way of interpreting the Bible so that it does not conflict with the other passages of Scripture. I don't know if I've answered that question satisfactorily that a believer who... Um, sinned, he remains a child of God, but again uh, if he is a believer and he has sinned and gone away from the Lord uh, I pointed out to you that there has to be some measure of chastening, uh, and the book of Hebrews by the way, uh, deals with this fairly extensively uh, in the chapter number 12 I hope we get to that passage, but in Hebrews chapter 12 in, in ch verses 5, verse 7, verse 8 and verse 11, you'll find that it talks about God chastening his sons uh, and he's chastening because they sin in their lives and if there's no chastening when the believer is involved in sin he said you're not a son, you're a bastard because God chastens every son that he receiveth and the other thing I would like to, I, I think we've, we've talked about this as well, two things let us remember that in the chastening process there is a terminal point, as I pointed out to you, that God says, uh, enough is enough. I've chastened you enough. You've not responded. I've done everything I can. I've sent people to talk to you. I've used my word to get the message to you. You've turned on the radio. I've even spoken to you through that word. Uh, I've given you books. I've come in your way. You've read the books. And nothing has, nothing has moved you. You just remain stubborn and adamant, and you've got a hard heart. Uh, God says, that's it. And that's why I said it's a sin un, uh, unto death. The other thing is this. Remember that after the believer who is chastened, uh, who faces sin unto death, that's not the end for that believer. 
there is a judgment seat of Christ that is coming that will take care of a lot of these things where we will lose our rewards. So it, it has repercussions. We're not encouraging people because they are truly saved that they can go on and live in sin perpetually. A person who does that does not really understand what salvation is about, and they are just fooling themselves that they're in the kingdom when in fact they're still in darkness. And the doctrine of sonship proves that you are eternally secure. Because in the natural realm, as long as that child is my son, that child will remain my son. Even though the relationship might be be broken, that child will still remain as my son. Which makes absolute sense to anybody who thinks about it. And that's why I say that uh, salvation, uh, eternal security is inherent in the nature of salvation. If you understand what salvation is, that you've made a new creature. By the way, you're now taken out of the old Adam. You're now put in Christ. You're in Christ. You're already seated in heavenly places in Christ. The person that God uh, elects, the, the person that God uh, calls, that person, we're told that they are justified. We're also told that they are going to be glorified. In other words, once God has justified you, he brings you to glorification. That's God's purpose. One, In other words, once one has begun, the other one will be end because he which has begun a good work and you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. God never starts anything that he doesn't complete. So you can be absolutely sure once he's done a work of grace in your life, he will complete that, wor- that work. That's the promise of Scripture. And uh, so that's the kind of confidence we have. And by the way, brother, let's ask a question. We're in truth and fact. If salvation was really dependent on my keeping myself, do you know of anybody, anybody, that really feel competent to keep themselves safe before God? <laughs> I mean, it is ludicrous to think that I can do anything uh, to justify myself or to keep myself in a justified state. <clears throat> Everything in the Bible makes it quite clear that my entire salvation is dependent on the meritorious work of Christ on the cross and his substitutionary death. That that is what gives me salvation. It's not my good or my bad. It's my faith and trust in the finished work of Christ. What God looks at is not at me. He looks at him. I'm justified in him. So if I've got the mistaken idea that I am being saved by how much good works I do, uh, you can never do enough works to keep yourself safe or get yourself safe. It is all dependent on the finished work of Christ. That is what gives us justification. That is what gives us eternal security. And so the work of salvation is all by God and God alone. Well, it, it, it's, it's, it's the totality of it is totally dependent on God. But man has one role in that salvation, that's to believe. God in his sovereignty has chosen to deal with man on the basis of his putting his faith and trust in Christ. But once that faith is exercised in Christ and and and, uh, and uh, want that person, then God comes in and God guarantees that you are now adopted into his family. You're given a new nature. You become a new person. You are now in Christ. You're taken out of the old Adam and now put in Christ. See, So how, how, how would you get yourself out of that? How can you now degenerate yourself how can you now uh, de-adopt yourself? How can you take yourself out of Christ if God is placed in Christ? You're already seated in Christ in heavenly places. How are you going to remove yourself from in Christ? I think the problem is that a lot of people don't really understand the depth of what God has done for us. But once you grasp what the Bible teaches, it gives you the wonderful assurance that 
you're, de- you're not dependent on yourself. It is what God, Christ has done for me that, that really gives me an eternal standing before God. Pastor Murphy, how important it is for a person to have that assurance of salvation because there are those who claim to be saved or sometimes they're saved, but they don't have that assurance of their salvation. And so they, they waver, they, they are weak, and it's a struggle. So how important it is? I, I think it's crucially important. I don't know how anybody can enjoy the Christian life without having assurance. How can you, how can you enjoy your family if one moment you think your daddy's your daddy, but the next moment you're not too sure? How could you ever really uh, delight in a home where one moment you're not too sure if daddy can kick you out or they're going to keep you in? That kind of ambivalence can never lead to any kind of joy and comfort. And until the believer understands that, uh, what does God want from God, God? Look, the Bible talks that the, uh, there's a passage in Scripture which says that um, the kingdom of God is not meat nor drink, but joy and peace and power in the Holy Spirit. We're called to peace. We're called to enjoy, to have joy. But how can we have peace and joy when we go through life uncertain who we belong to? Uh, and that is why it's important for us to see what the Bible teaches on this matter. The other thing I like to say, uh, Brother Erskine, is that let's be very honest. There are some passages, legitimate passages, that have created some people's doubt in their mind as to whether or not it's teaching that a person can be saved or lost. And that is why when those passages are not properly interpreted, it can lead people to feel that you can be saved one day and lost another day. And that's why the proper interpretation of these passages, like Hebrews chapter 6, is needed to enable the believer to understand what that passage means because often they really don't understand what the passage is teaching. Consequently, uh, they take those passages mean that you can be saved, you can be lost. So, but it's important. I don't know of anybody who can um, enjoy the Christian life or have any measure of real peace. And I will say this as well, really love God with all their heart uh, without being sure. How can you love your father if you're not sure your father or not? Uh, the fact that you understand his great love for you and the fact that he has adopted you to his family and that you be, you're part of the... Part, you, you, in other words, is Jesus is not afraid to call them brethren. You're a brother of Christ. I, I don't know how else to put it, but quite frankly, uh, without assurance, there can be no joy, there can be no peace, and clearly there can be no great progress in the life because you go two four steps forward and three steps backward. One moment you feel safe, next week you don't feel you're lost. One moment you get up in the morning, you're singing the hallelujah chorus, the next morning you're so dung in the dumps, you're wondering, wait, wait a minute, you know, am I doomed? You can't live a life like that. You've got to... And remember, faith cannot live on feelings. Faith can live only on the Word. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So if you're weak in that area, you've got to get into the Word that will strengthen your spiritual muscles so that your hope in Christ will be secure and safe. But don't depend on your feelings because your feelings turn with the weather and how people treat you and and, uh, your situation in life. Uh, Make sure that you understand that you must be grounded and rooted in Scripture and the teaching of Scripture and not go on the basis of your feelings. Well, I know what you're talking about. When I got saved first, you know, there are those who teach that you could be saved and lost. So I wasn't assured of my salvation. But then missionary um, Kurt Waite gave me some cassette tapes. Uh-huh. 
and I listened some te- to some teachings on eternal security, and that solidified my faith and my belief. I got this assurance, and it brought such joy yeah. and confidence in my life. So the assurance of your salvation is very important. Those who claim to be saved, and as you say, they wake up today, they don't feel like they're saved. It's a battle that they are fighting all the time, and it's it's a a tough life to live. But the Bible plainly teaches that you can know for sure that you are saved. Correct. John uh, chapter 5 speaks to this matter. These things have been written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So God wants, would you not want your son to know that you're his father? (laughs) if (laughs) If you take these things on a plain human level, right, I always say, look, if I think this way and my thoughts are noble, they are nothing in comparison to the nobility of how God views things. I cannot love... Look, let me just say this, brother. You, you used an illustration just a moment ago. There is nothing my sons could ever do that can stop me from loving them or caring for them or wanting the best. I don't care what they do. They can, they can disappoint me in the worst way. They are my flesh and my blood, and I love them unconditionally. Now, if I am a man and I feel that way about my earthly children, think about what God, how God, the, in the book of Romans, we're studying the book of Romans in our, in, our, in our series, and we're now dealing with that book. And, and Paul points out, look, God loved you when? When you were an enemy. God loved you when you were un, unholy, ungodly. And God loved you when you were a sinner. And, and then he went on saying, listen, you know, scarcely for a righteous man would one die, yet peradventure for a good man. But you were neither righteous nor good. You were ungodly, you were a sinner, you were an enemy. And this is before you got saved. How much then? No. How much? That's Paul's <laughs> point. Paul's <laughs> point very clear. If he loved you that way, now that you're saved, is he going to take away that love? If he loved you before, we are, uh, there's nothing in you. Now that you've come to redemption. Are you telling me that this love only extends to me before I was saved and not after I got saved? Perish the thought. Perish the thought. But then in Romans 8, it said, Who or what shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ, Christ Jesus. Jesus? And he named a long list. That's right. That's right. There's nothing in heaven or in yes. earth that shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ That's Jesus. That's right. He went on on height, not depth. He went on the principalities, not powers or things present, or things to come, a whole list of those things could separate. And then he went on to say, who should condemn us? Right? Who should bring the charge to God elect? He said, it is Christ that died, it is Christ that's resurrected. In other words, he is the only one. And it, the Bible says in, in, in chapter 8, verse 1 of Romans, there is now therefore no condemnation. So the only one that can condemn us is Christ, and he hasn't condemned us. <laughs> so who now will bring a charge to God elect when a believer is already justified? Uh, I think the wonder and the glory of understanding what was done at the cross, once you grasp it in its totality, uh, it brings immense joy and comfort to the believer, and you rest on your pillow. It's no longer a stone. It's a soft uh, means of uh, enjoying the Christian life. I'd just like to acknowledge that um, comment from a Facebook listener, Pastor Murphy said, Great teaching, Pastor Murphy. That's coming from a Facebook, a Facebook listener. Thank you, whoever that is. Pastor Murphy, what is the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism? 
You like to tackle that now? Yeah, we, we could we could answer that question because when you're dealing with eternal security, uh, that comes into play, and the audience may not be familiar with those terms, but um, uh, a Calvinist basically is a person that holds the uh, five basic principles. It normally called uh, tulip, and I mentioned it a moment ago. It has to do with uh, total depravity, uh, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace and the perseverance of the saints. So Calvinists believe in eternal security. Every single Calvinist is out there, he believes in eternal security. The Arminian uh, is different. Arminian is a person uh, who followed uh, Arminius, who was at first a Reformed theologian, but then he became what is called a, a prelapsarian. And I don't want to get into those kind of terms. We'll probably discuss them a little bit later. But he, what he did, he, that he, um, he believed that a believer can be saved and he can be lost. He did not also believe in total depravity. He believed that Adam's sin polluted the believer, but it didn't make the believer guilty. It just um, polluted him, but he can still, in his own strength, live a perfect life. Uh, that is Arminius. But he also believed that uh, a person who would come to faith in Christ can turn back and be eternally lost. Now, there are groups in Antigua that are Armenian. There are groups in Antigua that are, 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 are Calvinistic. Most Baptists, uh, whether it be Reformed Baptists uh, or Independent Baptists, most Baptists are Calvinistic, uh, not in the sense that they follow to the T, the, the, the tulip, but in the sense that they are people that believe in eternal security of the believer. Armenians are groups like the Methodists, um, the Methodists, the Pentecostals are Armenian as well. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of another group. I think New Testament Church of God as well. The Wesleyan. The Westin as well. Those groups are Armenian. They believe that a believer can be saved and a believer can be lost. So that's the essential difference between between them, uh, that Armenians believe that you can be saved, you can be lost. Calvinists believe that you are eternally saved and once saved, you cannot be lost. That is just an essence between the Armenian. Uh, I would like to say this in terms of the Methodists. Part of the problem that went with uh, why uh, John Wesley um, went in that direction is that he didn't follow carefully the tenses uh, in the scripture about the um, the present tense and the past tense and what those mean, the significance of the aorist tense and the perfect, perfect, all those kind of things. And because he didn't pay special attention to those tenses, uh, he went along with the Armenian view. And of course, out of that came the Methodists, out of that came the Wesleyans. So you've got those two groups in the island. I don't know if we could ever uh, resolve the problem between the Calvinists and the Armenian. Um, it's very, very difficult because when you've been holding the tradition for so long, it's very It's like asking a person who was a Catholic all of his life and his mom was a Catholic, great to ask him to now change is very difficult. Even though you can show him that certain things are incorrect and wrong, and you can show him from the Bible that these things are, are contrary to Scripture, there is this deep sense of loyalty that I cannot inex explain. It seems inexplicable. I would think what a person wants about religion is truth and want to see truth to go after truth. But that's not often the case. Sometimes the traditions are so uh, ingrained, it's difficult to move away from those things. Okay, we, tonight we are dealing with the topic of eternal security of the believer, or some coined it, once saved, always saved. Pastor Murphy, as we continue 
This question is, what proof is there that the Bible teaches the doctrine of eternal security? What? I think this is the most important uh, question that we need to deal with tonight, because as I said before, this matter of whether we're saved and eternally saved or can be saved and lost is not going to be settled by human arguments. It has to be settled by what does the Scripture say on this matter. So the finality on this uh, final thought or final word on this is what actually Scripture teaches. So I think it's important that we draw to the audience's attention uh, why we believe the Bible teaches this and can we use biblical passages uh, to corroborate what we're saying. What I would like the, uh, to say, quite frankly, here is that one of the greatest reasons for believing in individual security is that the entire Trinity, the entire Godhead, is involved in securing the believer. Uh, and when you study the passage of Scripture, to think that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are working cooperatively to accomplish eternal salvation, one wonders what power or what force, whether human or infernal, could ever think it could defeat the powers of the divine trinity in respect to this matter. Uh, let's take the Father for just a moment. The, what's the Father's purpose in when he redeems somebody? What's his purpose? What's his ultimate goal? What he wants to achieve? And that brings us to uh, uh, Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. And I want to read that to the audience where it says, Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them and also glorified. You notice that each one of those in the aristents are complete work. So if he uh, calls you, if he predestinates you, he will also you're already glorified. As far as God the is tense in, there is also we already glorified. In God's thinking, <laughs> positionally, we are glorified. Yes. Right? This is it's like we're already saved. There are three tenses in the Bible. We are saved from eternal punishment. We are being saved from sin. I'll be saved from the presence of sin eternally. But notice that this is God's plan. This is God's purpose. And who can resist his purpose? He said, My purpose shall stand. And God is not going to predestinate a person, call a person, justify a person, and then not glorify a person. It comes as part of a full package. So once he has predestinated you and called you and justified you, mark it down. You are going to be glorified. Nothing could prevent that. So that is one of the clear Bible verses that indicates to you you're safe and secure, God's purpose. Who can violate God's purpose? Who can thwart God's purpose? Who can frustrate God's purpose? Nobody can. The other thing is this. Think about for God's power for just a moment. And I want to read um, what Peter says in First Peter chapter 1 and verse number 5. Uh, Peter uh, says in verse number 5, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 5, uh, who are kept by the power of God, who are kept by the power of God, through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So who keeps us? It's God. He keeps us. So if He keeps me, the only way now that I can ever be lost is that He stops keeping me. But He has promised to keep me. Uh, the book of Jude is another interesting verse, but it says in verse, uh, verse number 24 of Jude, He said, Now unto Him, that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of God with exceeding joy. So God is the one that's doing the keeping. But it's even a greater verse than this. It is what our Lord tells us in the book of John, chapter number 
10 uh, and verse number 28 and verse number 29. Uh, let me read these verse to you. John chapter 10, verse 28, 29. Chapter 10, sorry. John chapter 10, uh, verse 28 and verse 29. He said, My Father, which gave, 28 says, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I want to notice two things here. And I give unto them eternal life. Okay? eternal. You've got eternal life. Not only that, and they shall never perish. In the Greek tense, it is a double negative. They shall never, no, never perish. See, It's a guarantee that the person who God has given eternal life can never perish. And then he says that we're in God's hand, and then we're told that we're in His hand. So we've got the power of God keeping us in His hand. Now you tell me, no man is able to pluck them out of my hand. In the Greek language, no one is able to pluck them out of my hand. So how then can a person who is kept in God's hand, in the hand of Christ, by the power of God, how then now can he be lost, having had uh, been given eternal life? So it is not only the purpose of God, or the Father, but it is also the power of the Father who guarantees that we are safe and secure. Pastor Murphy, that passage of scripture that you read there in First Peter mm-hmm. chapter 1, verse 4, uh-huh. that's a powerful verse. Extremely powerful. It said that we are kept, we are God. It's like a garrison. We are guarded by no man, but by the power of, of God. God. I almost want to say hallelujah. <laughs> it's a Pentecostal I, service I just tonight. did some study in, in that, and uh-huh. that brings out the assurance of salvation. It's no puny man. It's God in. It's God, the Father, the power of the Almighty God, protect yeah. our salvation. Yeah. It is preserved, and it is reserved. If you have a reservation, by God, mm-hmm. who can't thwart that? Yeah. But that's why I said Brother Erskine in an earlier comment that a lot of times when people are struggling with the security, two things. They uh, don't know the Scripture. If they do know the Scripture, they don't interpret the Scripture properly. And then there are those problematic passages that have never been explained by their pastors to those people. So often they're reading those passages, and even though they, they, they read like John chapter 10, they come to Hebrews chapter 6, and somehow they forget what John chapter 10 has said, as though Hebrews chapter 6 can contradict John chapter 10. And the other thing, of course, is that we have put so much emphasis when it comes to salvation on the human side we have forgotten that salvation is of the Lord and that He's the one that saves, He's the one that keeps. Uh, man cannot keep himself. If any man believes he can keep himself, he is going to be eternally lost because his faith is in himself and not in the power of God. So uh, the Bible is very, very clear in this matter, and that's why passages that you just mentioned would bring such delight to your heart uh, in the, in, as far as our security is concerned. Let me... Um Share another one with sure, you. Sure, go right ahead. This is John chapter 6, verses 37 to 40. And note what it said here. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven to do mine own will. Sorry. 
For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which he had sent me, that of all, all which he had given me, he I none. should lose None. nothing, but should raise it up again the last day. Yep. Day of glorification, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> and this is the will, verse 40, and this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. You can't want nothing clearer and that. plainer than that about eternal security. I agree with you, brother, but it, it, the, the abundance of verses of Scripture that uh, speaks to this subject, uh, they are so, um, so large in number that when you come to an obscure passage like Hebrews chapter 6, somehow people are ready to jettison all of those verses that confirm and corroborate the, the biblical doctrine of eternal security and hold on to a passage of Scripture that uh, is an isolated passage of Scripture. You don't use that interpretation in every form of interpretation. The obscure must always be understood in the context of that which is clear. Uh, but the mistake is made often by uh, finding one or two passages. Uh, if I might use another parallel here, I know that we talk eternal security, but that's like uh, those groups that claim that uh, when a person dies, He's unconscious. They go to one verse in the book of Ecclesiastes, <laughs> and they use that one verse, and there are about two dozen more that makes it very clear that he's alive. But they hold on to that one single verse, rather than interpret that obscure verse by the multiplicity of verses that confirm otherwise, they jettison the, the countless number of verses and hold to that one select verse. And often that's because the denomination or the group has been taught that and they know if they surrender that, they're surrendering something that's unique to that, that, that particular movement. And that can lead to a movement of people out of the organization. Therefore, they keep teaching the same thing when there's so much abundance. And then they re begin to interpret all of these passages in light of that one passage. <laughs> it's the most comical thing to observe. And it's the most dishonest way of interpreting Bible. Pastor, maybe those folks tonight does not believe the doctrine of eternal security. But um, I have just one more Go to right share ahead. with you. And that is Titus chapter 1, verse 2. It said, In hope of eternal life, which God that promised. cannot lie, God cannot lie, had promised before the world began. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, this is not something that God decided after even man was, was created. Long before, he had made a decision and decreed that he would save those that believe. And he that, that that's an eternal decree. And he can't lie about that. I mean, God can't give you something and then take it back from you. And by the way, I, I'm coming to a verse of Scripture that says the gifts and calling of God is without repentance. In other words, once you have the gift of God, uh, whatever gift that is, whether that be eternal life, whether that be a, a spiritual gift, once God gives you that gift, He's not going to repent over that gift. He's already given it to you. He doesn't take it back from you. So that's why, by the way, when some pastors backslide and they get out of the ministry, they don't lose the gift of preaching. People say, but that guy can preach well. Because that's the gift. It's not taken away from him. His position might be taken away from him, but the gift is still there, and he might be put on the shelf even though he has a gift. But the Bible said the gift and, and eternal life is a gift. 
And it says it's the gifts of God are without repentance. God doesn't repent that he gave you the gift. He doesn't take the gift back from you. Uh, you had another verse there. Go right ahead, you were saying. No, I was... When I got saved, and John 3.16, probably the most well-known verse, and simple but profound. For God so loved the world mm -hmm. that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should what not, not perish, perish, but what have everlasting life. And I, just as I got saved and said, what is everlasting life? Mm-hmm. It's not something God give you and take it back. It's for eternity. So that kind of a bubbles my mind for those who teach that you can lose, um, lose your salvation. I agree with you. I, uh, um, I endorse what you're saying, I, uh, and that's one of the great texts that can prove eternal security. Uh, and you don't so need nothing us. else. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the body of evidence that's there that is so overwhelming, uh, and then you, you're really bamboozled that somebody can come with one passage and use that one passage to destroy all the other texts, when it should be the reverse. I mean, if I got two dozen passages that say one thing, and I find one passage that seems to contradict the two dozen, how could the two doesn't be wrong and I don't need to reinterpret the one to fall in line with the second uh, uh, with the first group I, I think that is what has happened people are just not interpreting the Bible correctly and that has led to some confusion on this matter if I may go back to what we're talking about we're talking about the Trinity involving redemption we talked about the Father in terms of his purpose and his power but then when it comes to the Son, though, his, his, his work in salvation, one, one way that guarantees my redemption is the power of his death. Uh, that is why in the book of Romans chapter 8 and verse number 33, and I quote this verse, uh, it, it says, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God the Father, who also maketh intercession for us. So his argument here is basically is that the death of Christ has so cemented my eternal security that who can bring a charge? The only body who can bring a charge against God elect is Christ himself. Mm -hmm. But then it goes on to say, it's Christ that died, that Christ was resurrected, and Christ that he now intercedes for the very people that he redeemed. So it's saying that his death... Uh, has totally put man outside the pale of condemnation. That's why in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there's now therefore no condemnation of them that are in Christ Jesus. Judgment is passed in terms of determining eternity. There will be the judgment seat of Christ where it has to do with rewards. But in terms of eternal judgment and eternal penalty in terms of either heaven or uh, in, in, in wrath, we have been delivered from wrath by his death, and there's now absolutely, absolutely no way that we can be condemned because Christ paid the price. I told our church on Sunday night when I was dealing with Romans chapter 5 that the fact that Christ has died for my sins it's impossible now that God the Father can hold me responsible. It's called double jeopardy. If somebody has paid for them already, I cannot be now made to pay for them again. The sin question has been eternally settled by Christ's death. We need to under, and that's why God can justify us and declare us righteous. And may I say something else to the, 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 uh, the audience as well? 
when the believer becomes justified by faith in Jesus Christ, it's not just that his sins are pardoned, his past, present, and future sins, but it also means that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to the believer's account. So that is why, even though I am not perfect and I'm still sinful, God can still treat me as righteous because he sees me in Christ. When he looks at me, he sees me as a redeemed. It's as though Christ surrounds me. If you can imagine that Christ is completely over me, when God looks at me, he sees me through Christ. So even though I'm a a person who is still sinful in nature and who have a tendency to want to go astray, God can treat me that way because I have the the right Christ imputed to my account. Now tell me this. If his righteousness is imputed to my account, who's going to remove that righteousness so that I now become once before God guilty and uh, worthy of judgment and wrath and condemnation? My whole salvation would have to be undone. But who brought my salvation? God did. Who promised to keep me? God did. So it's contradictory to suggest that if I'm saved eternally, uh, now I can lose my salvation because uh, I've, I've created a foible and did some mistake or committed some kind of sin. I've gotten away from the Lord. The Lord will chase me and bring me back. We have a question here, a WhatsApp question. Hello, Brother Murphy and Brother Erskine. My, I have misunderstood. Are you saying that if one is not Calvinist, he is Arminian. Very good program. May God give you the grace to continue. God bless you. Let me, let me quickly respond to that. What I mean by that is that you either believe in secu- eternal security. If you believe in eternal security, you are Calvinist. Okay? You might not want the term Calvinist to be used because you're not a tulip person. But uh, all Baptists are Calvinistic in their doctrine, uh, with the exception, of course, of limited atonement and so on and so forth. But it, uh, historically and theologically, uh, Calvinists are people who really embrace eternal security. There are other doctrines you're talking about. Armenians are people who are believe that a person can be saved and lost. So that is why those terms are used. You're either Armenian in terms of eternal security, or you are Calvinist in terms of eternal security. That's what we mean. We're not saying that you believe in tulip. That's not what we're saying. We're just simply saying that you hold into a Calvinistic doctrine, uh, eternal security. Okay, thank you, Pastor Murphy. Probably it's time now for us to go into the passage of Scripture there in no, Hebrews. No, I'm not finished chapter, with this thing. Um, <laughs> okay, well, uh, probably. Um, yeah, let me just, w- because I talked about the Trinity involved. We talked about the Father as far as His purpose. Okay, so concerned. you want to continue. Yeah, I want to, because I think it's important, as I, as I said this, this argument and this debate is not going to be settled because of your opinion or my opinion. It has to do with what does the Bible teach on this matter. And the more we can um, build a case from Scripture, it will help the person out there who is uncertain on this doctrine that what we're teaching or what we're espousing this evening is biblical. And that's why we try to point out that the Father, uh, uh, his role in our redemption, as far as his purpose is concerned, is power. We mentioned Christ, the power of Christ's death. But also, we got to take into consideration the, the, the prayers of Christ. And there are two aspects to his prayer. When he was in the uh, high priestly prayer in book of John chapter 17 uh, he had a preventative ministry of prayer for us where he intercedes for us and he prays in John chapter 17 for five things for us he prays that the Lord would, the Father would keep the, us from the evil one he prays that we would be sanctified through the word he prayed that we be one as he and the Father is one he prayed that we be with him in heaven and he prayed that we would behold his glory 
Now, these are prayers that he made to his father. Now, I would want to ask any person one question. Can God the Father reject the prayer of his son? Impossible. So if he's praying that we be glorified with him, we will be glorified. If he's praying that uh, we will be with him in heaven, we will be in heaven. His prayers cannot go unanswered. He's, he's perfect. He's the son of God. Uh, and the point I'm making here that those intercessory prayers were made on our behalf. This prayer in itself guarantees that what he was requested will come to pass. The other thing about it, there's also what you call curative ministry, where he is currently our advocate in heaven. And um, remember in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, it says that the enemy, uh, Satan, accuses us before God how often? Day, Day and, night. and night. And his role is not only his intercessor, he acts as our advocate, our representative, our lawyer. That's why First John chapter 2, verse 1 says, If a man sin, we have a what? An advocate with the Father. See, that in itself, uh, who can accuse us before God? Which attorney you know, what lawyer you know can defeat the Son of God? In terms of either argumentation or presentation of his finished work on the cross. And that's where, again, we are secure, not only because of his intercessory work, but because of his advocacy for us, standing before God when we are accused to defend us. Uh, that clearly would, uh, should reassure us that we are uh, eternally redeemed. Let me mention one other thing, our position in Christ. I mentioned uh, sometime in our conversation that when we are redeemed and we are brought back and we have been reconciled to God and we've been justified. The Bible says that we are now placed in Christ. Uh, how are we going to be removed from being... We are no longer in the old Adam. We are now in the new Adam, the new Christ. And this fact uh, underscores uh, the fact that we are in Him guarantees that we are uh, eternally secure. When you go through the Bible, that's why it says in Christ, because we're in Christ, we are saved. Because in Christ, we are justified. Because we're in Christ, we are already sanctified. Because we're in Christ, we are glorified. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, which is an interesting verse. Pastor, before you go there, sure. we have a, a caller. Hello, good evening. Good evening. Good evening, sir. Yes, yeah, I'm calling from New Yes, sir. I recognize you. Yeah. Um... I want to know if the salvation of the prophets in the Old Testament is different to that of salvation offered to the saints in the New Testament. There is a verse, uh, three verses of scripture in Ezekiel chapter 33, which says, Therefore, thou son of man, say unto the children of thy people, the righteousness of the righteous shall not be, shall not deliver him in the day of his transgression. As for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not thereby, he shall not fall thereby in the day that he turneth from his wickedness. Neither shall the righteous be able to live for his righteousness in the day that he sinneth. When I shall say unto the, to the righteous, Thou shalt surely live, 
if he trusts in his own righteousness and commits iniquity, shall his righteousness, all his righteousness, shall not be remembered, but for his iniquity that he had committed, he shall die for it. Again, when I say to the wicked, thou shalt surely die, if he turn from his sins, if he turn from his, when I say to the wicked, thou shalt surely die, again, he hath, if he give again what he hath robbed, and hath restored, uh, let me get this right, walk in the statute of life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live, he shall not die. What's your take on that? Well, let me respond to you very quickly. First of all, there is no substantial difference between you're talking about eternal salvation or you're talking about physical salvation. In the case that you're dealing there in the book of Ezekiel, uh, God is bringing judgment against the nation Israel. It has nothing to do with eternal judgment. It has to do with God chastening Israel because of Israel's sin and bringing the nation against Israel to destroy Israel. Uh, so it's not really dealing with, it's dealing with temporal punishment. That's why I said, he didn't say you shall eternally be damned, you shall die. The other fact is this, God did deal with man on a, a different basis in the Old Testament. He dealt with man under the economy of law. We know these were under the economy of grace. And so the difference between law and grace. What I mean by that is everybody in the Old Testament was saved the same way we are saved today. They were saved by looking forward to the seed of the woman coming, the Messiah's coming. We are saved by looking back to the fact that the Messiah has already come. So whoever was saved in the Old Testament was saved on the basis of faith in the promised Son of God, the Messiah that was coming, whether it's uh, before or after. They all said the word faith in the Messiah. But in terms of God dealing with uh, the Old Testament people, he dealt with them on a different basis. He dealt with them on the basis of law. And that's why he's saying to a, a righteous man, if, you, if you're a righteous man and uh, you believe that because you're righteous you go on and sin now, you're going you're gonna to be uh, absolved from the judgment to come. He said, no. You're going to be punished because I'm bringing the enemy against Israel and because you were righteous 10 years before and now you're living in sin, it doesn't mean that you're going to escape the wrath of God through these foreign nations that are coming against you. On the other hand, you're a wicked man, but you hear that judgment is coming. You turn around now, you become a righteous man. So here the man that was righteous before, not practice righteousness, no judge through the judgment, but a man who was a sinner before now is, uh, turns his life around and now is righteous, he's saved. That's what the Bible is teaching there. It has nothing there to do with eternal uh, damnation in that passage. It all has to do in the context with God bringing the Babylonians against Israel to punish Israel, and he's letting them know that, you know, you live a righteous life before, but you're gonna, if you're going to sin now, judgment is coming, you're not going to escape this. But the man who has been sinning hears that the judgment is coming, he repents now and he lives righteously. It has to do with temporal death. That's why I keep saying there is in the Bible a sin unto death, not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. But what people do a lot of times, they take a passage that has to do with temporal judgment and apply eternal judgment to it, and that's where the confusion comes in. Okay. Um, I remember some years ago, I was called to a conversation with two persons, a man and a woman. Now, one is a Brethren Assembly a member, and the other a Catholic, um, a Anglican. 
And this Brethren Assembly member was saying to this Anglican that after a person is saved, he can go back and sin and still go to heaven. Mm -hmm. Is that the mindset of a, a saved person? It's not the mindset of a saved person, but the reality is that the Bible teaches that if you are in Christ, you are eternally in Christ. Uh, and look, this is the confusion people got. If you are a Christian and you fall back into sin, which you can, any Christian can, let him that think of his stand of take heed lest he fall. But once you fall back into sin, God's chastening hand now comes into play. So if you are a person who is a professed believer and you fall into sin and gone away from God, you must face divine chastening. If you are sinning as a professed believer and there is no chastening in your life whatsoever, you are not a genuine, authentic believer. You're not the real thing. You are fake. You are a pseudo-believer. You're not a real believer because God chastens every child of His to bring that child back to righteousness. But if he's really saved... He's saved forever. But God will chasten him. So it doesn't mean that... And by the way, we're not saying that because you're saved, we're giving you the authority or the right to go out and sin. That's not what we're saying. The nature of God is in you. You're a new person. And he inclines you away from a sinful lifestyle. But uh, a believer once saved remains in that condition of being saved. And when he goes away from God, he'll be chastened and brought back to God. If he refuses to be chastening, God will cut him off. Cut him off. Premature death. And at the judgment seat of Christ, he would lose all the rewards that were due to him. But he cannot be saved today and be lost tomorrow. Because if that were true, Christ's death was not satisfactory to God to deal with all sin. And we believe that Christ, when he paid the price in the, death, uh, in the cross, he took care of my past sin, my present sin, and my future sin. The sin question had been settled once and forever. We have to understand that's what has happened when Christ died on the cross. So whether it was my sin in the past or my sin present or my future sin, the cross of Christ has dealt with that eternally. What God will do with me now is a question of rewards. It has nothing to do with eternal punishment. The punishment has been taken by Him already on my behalf. And God cannot punish Him and now then punish me as well. Not even in the course of modern law can you do that. So it cannot, you can't practice double jeopardy. Once the price has been paid completely, it has been paid. But where people get confused, I think, is that they look at the lives of people who were once professed believers, who messed up big time, and they assume that those people were authentic believers. But I will guarantee you, if you speak to those people, ask the majority of them, was God's hand of chastening on you while you were away from Him? If the answer is no, they were professed believers, but they're not genuine, authentic. But if they say, yes, the Lord's hand was heavily upon me, I felt it, but I still live in rebellion, then you understand that God has done a work in that person's heart. In other words, you're either a new creature, or you're not a creature at all. But once you're a new creature, you have the new nature of God in you. You are in Christ, you have His righteousness, and God has promised that if He has begun that work in you, He will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And we are told, I haven't dealt with the Holy Spirit yet, but we are sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. That is how long we are sealed. Until finally He comes back and redeems the body, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. That is how God guaranteed, and by the way, if God did not do that, I do not know of any man or woman that could enjoy the Christian life. 
because as long as it's dependent on, on me keeping myself, I can never have joy because I'm good one day, something happens, I turn around to be very rotten, I look at myself, I should be praying, I don't pray, I should be fasting, I don't fast, so how much sin do I have to commit now that I'm lost? You can't live that way in the Christian life. And God never intended. He's given you guarantees so that you may enjoy the peace and the joy of knowing that you belong to Him. You're His child and He will take care of you. And He guarantees that He will finally glorify you. That's the hope that we have. And that's the glory of the Christian faith. There's a scripture in my mind, but I can't remember it. Somewhere in Romans, I think it's Romans chapter 12, where you talk about the renewing of your mind. Good. If that's Romans chapter 12, verse is 1 and 2. Yeah. But that, that's, um, sir, you made a very good point. That is why it's the word of God that the believer needs to get into his mind and his heart so he'll be so transformed, so informed by the word that his feelings don't play games with him. I mean, one day you get up, you feel good, maybe because you, you know, I don't know if you're suffering from blood, high blood pressure, you're suffering from hypertension, uh, you know, something happens, you just don't feel well, you, you can't operate on that basis. Whether you feel well or not, whether you feel good or not, you're still saved. You belong to God. He's promised you that. Okay, good night. Good night, and thanks so much for calling. We really appreciate your calling, sir. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks, caller. Pastor Murphy, we have a WhatsApp question here from the British Virgin Islands. You'd like to answer it now? If I can answer that. In relation to our sins being paid for full by Christ, what does the scripture mean by when all must give an account of our lives on earth. Note, I believe in eternal security. So it's in relation to our sins. I think I got the drift of the mm. question. Yeah. Go ahead. You got more to it? No. Now, I, I think I understand to, okay. what the audience is saying. If, if, if Christ is taking care of my sin, past, present, and future, how then can I be judged? I think that's the, 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 the trend and the thought there. But here it is, uh, uh, the person who sent in that question. You are going to be judged on the basis of rewards or whether you suffer loss of rewards. It has nothing to do with your eternal destiny. Your eternal destiny is settled. Uh, Jesus uh, prayed and he said, I I want those that uh, you have given me to be with me. Uh, And he promised that when we, in in Thessalonians, it says that when the Lord returned, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we shall lie with Christ. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. So it's not a question of our eternal destiny. It's a question now of rewards. We're going to be judged for rewards. What do we do for the Lord? What was the motive behind what we did for the Lord? And, you know, this might seem a little bit on the carnal side, but you think for just a moment how much we make of rewards uh, here on planet Earth when we see these big ceremonies and people getting rewards for academic su- success or some athletic feat that they've accomplished. What a big thing we make of. We just had three ladies that rode across the, uh, the Atlantic. I think it took 42 days. What a big splash we made of them. Look how it's been all over the world, basically on television, etc., etc. There's coming a day when God will recognize what we have done for him. We may have done it in the dark, in the silence. No one acknowledges what we've done for him. Look, uh, there are people today that get it. They've got their rewards. 
It's been done before, man. But our day is coming. Let's be faithful to Him. Let us get busy, active, engaged in ministry for Him, knowing that there's nothing we will ever do for God that we will not be rewarded for. So the sin question is settled. But we are going to be judged on the basis of what kind of duties are we going to be given in the kingdom? Are we going to rule as kings, or are we just going to be one of the servants? Uh, how much authority are we going to be given? Uh, there's a question of rewards. It has nothing to do with the, the sin question. Pastor Murphy, we have a listener who would like to go on here. Hello, good evening. Good evening. Um, I would just like to um, to reference back to Ezekiel um, chapter 18. Yes, sir. Um, verses 30. Right? And it says, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn yourselves from your transgression, yeah. so iniquity shall not be your um, you, um, uh, ruin. Yeah. Um, my, my personal belief is it's not only an issue of save and loss. Mm-hmm. Right? My personal belief is, is, is for us to go after the backslider. Because in the, um, in the teachings of Jesus, he always says, you know, it's all about going after the backslider, going after the backslider, right? Yeah. He left the 90 and 9 and went after that, that lost sheep who, who, who has gone astray. Yeah. Right? And it's, it's all about, you know, if you see the person in a backslider condition, we go after that person. Because what? Basically, death is hanging over. Death is basically hanging over us, right? Yes, uh, And we can die at any moment, right? I agree with that. The thing is, right, it's a matter of um, um, dying in a repentant state or dying without repentance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think you're right about that. We should pursue those who have once belonged to the church or once were made professional faith mm-hmm. and try to bring them back. But the, the other thing that I need to say that um, we need to balance as well is that if a person is truly saved mm-hmm. and they've gone away from the Lord, Hebrews chapter 12 makes it quite clear. God will not let a believer get away with sinning without chastening. There will be chastening. The problem I have with a lot of people who are professed believers who've gone away from the Lord, when you talk to them, Mm-hmm. They don't give you any indication that they've ever been in the chasing. I've uh, come to the conclusion that a lot of those people, a lot of them, I don't know how many, don't know what percentage, uh-huh. a lot of those people have never truly known the Lord. Yeah. They made a profession, but I do agree with you that mm-hmm. the church should pursue those who um, are backslidden and gone away from the Lord. As you said, <laughs> I think you're talking like a, a person that um, understands the seriousness. Of this one. You know, I'm hearing people dying every day, very young, 51, 52. Life is so short. Yeah. And I, I think you're right about that, sir. And thank you so much for telling us that. I think we need to take this matter more seriously. Yeah, because I had an experience myself. Um, I, I was in a backsliding condition. Uh-huh. And um, one night I was sleeping, uh, about 2 o'clock. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I woke up from my sleep because I had a, had a, had a dream of the trumpet. Hello, the- Carla. Hi. Our time is up, so we'll pick you up next we'll time. continue next week. God willing. Okay, no problem, no problem. Okay, then, thanks okay. for calling. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. You're welcome. We will pick up Hebrews 6 listeners thank you very much for tuning i do trust that you have been blessed from the program do join us next week god's will thank you for joining us for today's program we pray that the holy spirit uses the truths shared from god's word to strengthen your faith now you've heard it that's truth 
Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.